Hi there, and welcome to Align with Lina. Today we have another episode where I introduce you to somebody who has done their own inner work. By that I mean she has done the work of aligning her truth, herself with her truth, aligning the head and the heart so that it can be in service to the greater aspect of who she is, which of course is her higher self, her soul, her spirit, whatever name you want to call it. And Align with Lina is all about helping to offer viewers just like you, just like us, an opportunity to see how is it that ordinary people who are living, you know, ordinary lives, we're doing the things that we think we're supposed to be doing, we're doing, you know, doing life, we're accumulating the money that we're supposed to accumulate, doing the jobs that we're supposed to be doing, maybe starting families and doing what we're supposed to be doing. And yet, even though we're doing that, there's something inside of us that is still calling us to a greater part of ourselves. So when ordinary people answer that call, it is the call of alignment with our true self, with our higher self, with the essence of God inside of us. And I am so excited to introduce you to one of those ordinary people who has gone through an extraordinary awakening. And she is here with me. She was introduced to me by another friend of mine. So I'm really excited to have you meet, as I'm getting to know better, Isabel Hunt. And she is a certified transformation coach. She's a speaker. She's an author. And she's also an emotions clearing practitioner. So we're going to do, as we always do, talk about her journey. What was life like before she began to awaken? when she was out of alignment with her truth, and then spend the bulk of our time talking about not only her journey to awaken, to transform herself, but then what is she doing with that now? Because as you've noticed from all of the people that I've interviewed, everybody who moves through this journey wants to share what they're discovering, whether they share it by becoming a teacher, a coach, writing a book, doing a workshop, or, or sharing it in their own families. Maybe they don't wanna write anything, they don't wanna teach anything, but they feel compelled to be the presence of what they have discovered is the truth of who they are. So without further ado, let me have you guys meet Isabel and welcome. Thank you so much for doing this call with me today. I'm really excited about this. And we've got some um, viewers on the line. So I'm going to ask those of you who are on that if you have comments or questions along the, the way, please write them, post them. If you have a question, we'll we'll do our best to make sure that we answer it. This is an interactive experience. And um, let me get back to you, Isabel. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I already tried to share it too. So <laughs> hopefully we'll get some more views on too. Um, but yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm super, super excited for this conversation because I know it's going to be awesome. Absolutely. Well, tell me about your life before you began to awaken, before you you answer that call to align with the higher aspect of who you are. What did it look like for you? Chaotic. <laughs> Chaotic. I always knew that there was something different about me. I mean, I had a I'm originally from Germany. I know we didn't mention that yet. So I'm originally from Germany and I moved to the US a couple of years ago. And when I was about 12 years old, I had this dream, this prophetic dream that I have to move to the United States. And I saw myself speaking on stage in front of a couple thousand people in English. And I was like, nope, there's no way I'm going to do that. But OK, thank you. <laughs> Um, but then it just, my subconscious continued to push me in that direction. So when I was 18, I came to the U S 
And I started to get really, really attached to that dream. Like, this is what I need to do. This is how I'm supposed to, where, where I'm supposed to go. This is what I'm supposed to, um, yeah, what, what, whatever, just, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. And when I was 18, I worked as an au pair, as a nanny for a family in D.C. And well, it was quite the experience. But when I came here, I just knew this is where I'm supposed to be. This feels like home. This is, I think I just got adopted back home, I guess. I Maybe. Um, but I'm definitely supposed to be here. But then there was just this absolute up and down constantly. Um, after this year, I had to go back to Germany. I was because everyone does. <laughs> I was supposed to start college and I did and I got, I, it just didn't feel at home there. So I started to really internally just have this war to what I knew I was supposed to do and where I'm going, just nothing felt right. And then I just felt pressured by my family. So I just wanted to go as far away as I could. So I took the, the spot that I got <laughs> and that was the furthest away, which was uh, a major in economics. I don't know why I ever did that, but I, it was just at some point I did that and I thought, okay, this is in alignment with my dream. This is where I'm supposed to go. And this is how I'm going to get a job in the U.S. Economics, of course, international, especially you're going to be good. It's going to be all fine. I'm just going to go through it and then move to the U.S. again. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I, that was one of the hardest years so far for me. I, I started to not be able to pick up on the subjects. I hated math. I hated accounting. I pretty much hated everything. Um, I started to get really, really anxious. I had panic attacks. I literally got up at five in the morning to go to class at seven and I came back home at eight and I had tutoring for math at 11 at night. So you can imagine the stress around that. And the, like your, your life was very rigid, you know, like uh, moving from one thing to the next yes. to the next. Yeah, and, and I'm known for that. I'm kind of known as, as a rigid person, at least back then, and a little bit pessimistic too. I always tried to figure out what struggle is next that I need to conquer. And within that, I got so depressed at some point. Like I, I literally, I remember that one event where I left my house, I went downstairs and I, I went out the front door. I had to cross the street and I was like, okay, whatever. If a car comes, a car comes. If not, I'm lucky. And I just walked right into the street. I didn't care. There was nothing for me where I cared or where, I, where it mattered to me anymore. And once I made it to the other side of the street, I knew I had to find help. So I saw my family doctor and told her what's going on. And they took it very seriously. And I was very glad about that. And then it, the, the whole journey started. I got very sick. I started to have... Um, I started to have bronchitis and then I started to have asthma and all those really not so fun things that just really drag you down. And then after two years, I got a letter from the university saying, uh, we, we are sorry, but you can no longer attend this university. You have missed too many um, exams 
and you fail too many, you can no longer do that. Well, with that, my dream just crumbled too. It was a constant up and down. And there was a little hope here. And then it was a total crash again. And then there was a little hope there. And then a total crash again. But to the point where the crashes were gotten worse and worse and worse. To the point that my dad literally moved in with me for a while. Um, he was a social worker back then. He actually now does similar work I do. But he was a social worker back then. And he moved in for a few days and helped me move through that. We went for so many walks. Um I don't know if he knew about grounding back then. I don't think he did or even does now, but we went to, uh, we went for so many walks and just out in nature. And that helped me tremendously to move through some of this stuff. And then I started university back in another city with finally subjects that I actually really like sociology and psychology. And I knew this is what I'm supposed to study, but then. Uh, everyone was younger. I didn't get along really with my roommates. They just didn't get where I was coming from because, again, I had this dream to move to the U.S. But then it was a struggle. How am I moving to the U.S. as psychology, sociology? You don't just get a green card. You don't just get a visa. And so I really just beat myself up internally and just nothing really seemed to work out. Then I had a boyfriend in the U.S., and then he started to cheat on me with like, I don't know how many hundreds of women within those three years. And I was 26. I was like, I should be having our uh, close to a family. I should be done with my studying. I should be clear on my future and what I want to do. I should maybe even have a job. And I have none of this. I have no money. I don't have a degree yet. I don't know how this damn dream is always coming back in my mind. It's not working. I'm just giving up. And then they changed a couple laws and I was able to come back as a no pair. And I was like, okay, they all could be my own kids. How is that going to work out? Well, New York was, I experienced a lot of discrimination, even though it was from a family who is familiar with discrimination in this country. So I was very surprised to experience it for myself because I grew up in East Germany. There's everything very rigid. This was under communism back then. Um, yes, I am that old. I still fall under that. <laughs> and um, and I was just not used to it. It really crushed me how people can even talk to other people like that. Then I moved from there to San Francisco to work for another family. She was from Iran, and that was just... <laughs> She thought I'm her mate. I'm her. I can. I, I'm supposed to do everything, and she can pretty much tell me every word I'm supposed to say. And it just was. I was like, I don't know. People just seem to hate me. Lies were being spread about me. Um, stories just for them to get their money back. I just. I just really started to wonder who I am and what I'm doing wrong. Why is nobody liking me? Everyone is lying about me. I know I didn't do the things that they're saying. And that one time, my, my, one of my friends, she looked at me and she said, Isabel, there's something about you. When people look at you, they know that you know something about them that they don't want you to know. There's something different. You literally look through people. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, that doesn't help me to actually be able to stay here and make money, but cool things anyways. I was a little cynical about it. Um, and then I moved from there to Indianapolis. And how old, how old were you, Isabel, when your friend said that to you? I was about 27. 27. And let me just say a quick hi to Anna and Bill. They both have said hi and hello to us. 
So thank you guys for watching us. <laughs> uh, so here you are at 27 and you have a friend who gives you a pretty profound, uh, you know, bit of information about you that people can sense that you are picking up on who they are, what they what they got going on. And as you know, when we're unconscious, we don't want anybody to know what we got going on. <laughs> no one, I didn't believe her either. I was just kind of shoveling in the background because all I had in mind is what I'm supposed to do, yeah. where I should be, what I should have in my life. I was literally like this, yeah. like whatever you say, it doesn't matter. I still need to figure out how to make money and how to survive here because at some point, I ended up in the street and strangers paid for a hotel room just so I can have a roof over my head and food. <laughs> and that was a very humbling experience right there because I didn't know them. I Someone introduced me to someone else and then there's like, yeah, we're willing to help you. And there were always those little pieces where God is like, trust me, yeah. just trust me, listen. I'm like, no, I have this dream and I need to go and I need to do this and I need to make this happen. There's no way I can just trust my intuition because, well, it's not really anything tangible. Like yeah. Anna, something Anna, that you can have in your hand. Exactly. Anna's, Anna's saying uh, that it's tunnel vision. Yes. When, when we are totally unconscious, we have this tunnel vision about how things should be. Yeah. And um, you definitely were exhibiting that. And oh, absolutely. So how did you begin to move out of this tunnel vision and begin to allow yourself to be guided more? Like you said, you know, this trusting piece, how did that begin to register with you? I think it had to get worse before it got better. <laughs> I'm known to be a little stubborn. Uh, maybe that's the German side in me. Everything like I know, I, I know people who say I awakened really fast. Like the, all the whole awakening process happened faster for me yeah, that did not for me. No, uh, I, I haven't met anybody yet that it, it happened really fast. Everybody that I've talked to, and myself included, it has to get worse before it gets better because yeah. until we give up trying to do it our way which is always, yeah. like Anna said, with tunnel vision, we, we can't open up and widen back and see the whole picture yeah. uh, or more of the picture. So, so, okay, so you were stubborn and then what? I just clung to that dream. I knew I was supposed to be here. I made everything happen. I got into IUPUI for a master's program for something that I really didn't want to do. See, I didn't trust my intuition again. <laughs> then I met my boyfriend and I was like, okay, maybe that is what will lead me to stay here, but I really don't want to use that as something because marriage for me is really important and just something sacred. I'm not using that just to get a green card. And it was an up and down within that relationship too. And he's like, no, I'm not going to get married. I have my five-year plan. I'm going to be a project manager first before I do anything else. I was like, oh gosh, that's not going to work. God, okay, maybe I just should go back to Germany. Maybe this is really, maybe I misunderstood something. And I had to go back to Germany. I came back on a student visa, knowing that I don't have $60,000, no clue what I was supposed to do. I just literally moved in with my boyfriend. I don't know if he was happy. I never asked him about it. I should have, maybe. I just moved myself in. And I started to get depressed again, because again, I didn't know how to get the money. I didn't know other ways. He didn't want to get married. It's like, all right, I'm giving up. Well, the university told me because you don't have the money, your sponsor jumped up, you have to go and leave the country and then you can come back. You can either go to Mexico or you can go to Canada. But because we have this waiver program with Germany, you can come back in for three months and you can figure out how you can get an assistantship. Okay. And that's when everything just, that was literally the last, the deepest fall. Yeah. Um, I had a friend, she came with me to Canada and we were... 
here you need to picture that you go up at um what is the over at detroit um no is it not where, where is the the ah oh, it's a very famous crossing point to the u.s niagara no further in the middle it's um yeah, Ohio. i think it's it's right. cleveland somewhere up there i forgot what it's called but it's it's kind of like a a port for, for everyone who needs to come back and forth. But it was kind of weird. We, we went there and we, uh, we had to go through that checkpoint and they asked, okay, why are you coming to Canada? And I told them, Oh wait, we have, we have to work through some issues with the visa and then we're going back. All right. We just want to know that you don't illegally stay here. You're fine. We're checking on you. So we stayed overnight and then we went back. We tried to go back. So we were in this little house where a whole bunch of different um, people were sitting that were trying to get into the U.S. You heard so many different languages. It was ridiculous. And I just said to my friend, can we just talk German? Because maybe that makes me feel a little safer. And I'm glad she, she was able to speak German with me, even though she's American. But we were just literally in that in that room. It was sticky. The air was just muggy. And then everyone, you could feel the fear from people. Like everyone was so fearful and so tense in there that we were just sitting in the corner like, what's going to happen to us? I don't know. Like you hear all those stories about immigration and detention and all that. That is real. That becomes so real. You're sitting there and you're just dripping for sweat. It's like you're sweat. And we were sitting there. Probably have a lot of empathy right now for all of the people who are being deported and being um, horrible. Oh, yes, I can only imagine. And hi, Sharon. Sharon, so happy to see us both. So good. It's good to have you uh, participating. But yeah, probably have a lot of empathy because you have you lived some of these things that are are not so fun. Yeah. And those officers are not friendly. Like the first one, he was all red. You could tell like he was already stressed from other experiences. And he looks at me he's like, there's no reason for me to go through that. You can just book your flight back to Germany. And I was bawling. I went to my friend. I was like, this is it. I think I have to call my boyfriend telling me to bring my suitcases. I'm done. I can't do. And she's like, I keep praying. I keep praying. And in that moment where I really hit rock bottom, like the deepest where you can just go, you're embarrassed already because you just ball in front of all those people and the officers. And he's like, I don't know what to do anymore. That's when another officer came in and he's like, hey, let me take a look at your stuff. I feel like there's something genuine about you, what you want to do. You're not just here for whatever reason to make money or to get married. I really think there's a reason why you're supposed to be here. And I just looked at him and I was like, yeah, but I don't think it's going to happen. He's like, just give me some time. So we were sitting in the corner. Literally, I was just surrendering to everything. I was ready to book my flight and go back home. It's like, I'm done with it. I'm tired. And I surrendered in that moment. And after three hours, that officer came back to me and he's like, I have a couple questions for you. I was like, please, God, I don't want to lie. I don't want to have to lie about my ex-boyfriend. I don't want to have to lie about my boyfriend because when they know I have a boyfriend, you can't come back in. And he never asked me about that current boyfriend. He asked me about my ex-boyfriend and I was able to really truthfully answer those questions. And I was like, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And he's like, you promise me that you will not do anything illegal when I let you back in, but I will let you back in. There are a lot of loopholes that I had to work through but I really think there's something bigger at play and you need to go back he literally said that to me 
And how old were you then? I'm trying was, to follow your timeline. It was about the same. It all happened within a year. Oh, so about 27, 28. Yeah, somewhere around there. Probably 27 because I got married at 28. Okay. So here you are at 27. You've been trying to do things the way that society has told you to do it, get a college, do, do all those things, while at the same time pursuing that calling that you got at 12 about um, moving into yeah. the, the moving to the U.S. So like like all of these little pieces are kind of beginning to converge. So here you are. You surrender this officer, clearly one of the the helpers. Um, the next one, yes. <laughs> on our journey that they're here. When you trust, you get to see the helpers everywhere. Yeah. So this helper gives you um, what you need. And then what happens? I went back to Indianapolis and I talked to my boyfriend and I said, something needs to happen. I need to find an assistantship and I couldn't find one. And I, again, I fell back into the non-trusting. I was like, okay, maybe, maybe that was just a fluke, but I got mad. I got so angry at God. Like you always give me those little pieces that I think now I'm on the right track. And then I have this next mountain where I don't know how to get over it. Like I was so upset and so angry with God because it was so exhausted too from this whole journey up and down. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it was December. No, it was September, October. I had to go back December 10th if nothing would work out. It was in 2010. December of 2010, I was supposed to go back and I had to book a flight for December 10th. And it was November at that point. It was about a month out. And I sat there and I was like, fine, now I'm just not mad at God. I'm also mad at my boyfriend. And then I'm just going to wait with the submit button. And when he comes home, he can watch me hit the submit button and feel bad about it because he's not doing anything for me. And once I hit the submit button, I will not come back. Like I literally was like this little stubborn, rebellious child at that point hitting the foot on the floor, like stomping. And he came home and I said, you know, it's time for me to book that flight. I I don't know what to do. There is no in and out. It's just not working. And he looks at me and he's like, no, I think God's really spoke to me today over lunch. And I just cannot let you go. What I'm always, what I'm so concerned about though, is that we do something illegal and that I don't want to do. And I already had done all the research, what would happen if we would get married and how it is possible and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, 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 no. We can make that work. Like, I really want to, I know you are the guy that I'm supposed to marry. And um, making it short that that night, he's like, okay, let's see what we can do and how we can make it work. Because I I don't think I really can let you go. And his mom was pushing too. And by the way, I love my mother-in-law. And um, (laughs) she was pushing too. He's like, you can't let her go. You can't do that. She is perfect for you. And and two weeks later, we got married. We're still married after almost eight years now. Um, Still perfect. Um, Everything is great. And we have now a little four-year-old. But when I surrendered that's when things started to move forward. And the big, very big shift was when a friend of mine said, hey, I don't think you should be in counseling. That's not what you're supposed to do. Take a look at coaching. I know a friend who goes through a coaching training. Maybe you should take a look. So I did. And interestingly enough, it was spiritual life coaching, ontological life coaching. And we said in that one session, I said to my husband, if we're going to do that, you need to come with me. And he looks at me. If you don't do that, then I don't know what you want to do with your life. But this is what you're supposed to do. 
I was like, but we want to pay off $115,000 in debt. And this is an additional $20,000 debt. And he's like, if we just trust, he's more the laid back person, you know, um, <laughs> If we trust, it will all work out. It's going to happen. We were able to pay off the 115000 in two years. No idea how because we didn't have any additional income. And I added to the, the 20000 to it, and that was paid off as well. And after this one year, I knew I'm on that spiritual journey. I understood that I'm an empath. I understood my gifts. I understood how to spiritually connect to who I am, to my soul, and to God. And it... I mean, at that point, it wasn't quite clear where I was supposed to go with my work, but that's when the journey really started. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. So here we are. And as Anna said, that that is amazing. So you are moving through your process of um, using your own mind, like you said, being stubborn, pushing against all of that that would have opened up more easier for you. I, I absolutely believe that. Oh, yeah. But we have to see those blocks. We have to see our stubbornness because that is what's showing us uh, the things that we are doing to ourselves. Because mm -hmm. once you began to get these helpers who are letting you know, your, your friend letting you know that, hey, you people are concerned because you have this intuitive, this empathic ability. And then a couple of years later, you get this officer who helps you. Then your your sweet husband who believed in you, who saw um, not only did he love you, but he knew you needed to move along this path. Your friend who tells you about coaching. So all these little wonderful uh, helpers having you come together to a place where you can finally recognize I am where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. So beautiful. So, so you've just explained so much of the hero's journey. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly was. Yeah. I still didn't feel like a hero, but I made it closer. <laughs> Yes, well, that, that's what Joseph Campbell calls it. I call it the soul's journey. So yes. here you are moving through these, these no longer needing to control life and now getting a little curious about how things can happen. What happens next? You begin to do this coaching training and now you're going through your spiritual journey. Tell me a little bit about what that spiritual journey is about for you. What, what is happening to you and in you? My spiritual journey, the, the first thing that I had to understand, I grew up Protestant. So I grew up in Lutheran church, which was very strict, especially in Germany. And anything that I felt until then about me would have been considered as a witch. Um, anything supernatural, it's probably from evil powers and demons, and I shouldn't even feel that way. Welcome so to the for, club. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> there was just like... God wouldn't create me this way if it wouldn't be for a reason. If this would be evil, then why would I like, why would he create evil people? I just didn't get in my head. And f through the coaching, the ontological coaching, really taking a look at spirituality, I was able to distinguish between spirituality and organized religion and how organized religion really has influenced my my way of being, how I connect with myself, how I create the shoulds and coulds and woulds, and this is how life is supposed to go. And I was even afraid to tell my parents about it. Yeah, My grandparents said, you joined a sect. Like they thought I'm getting into something really dangerous. I shouldn't be doing that. And distinguishing between spirituality and organized religion opened up so much more um, yeah. to me to work with. Um, and then the next story was for me, the spiritual meaning of money. I had a lot of blocks and 
obstacles in terms of money. And I was so focused on the coaching that I didn't see it as a sacred practice or something that is actually part of a sacred journey, but more as a money maker, as a business. So I worked with the, the people that I wasn't probably supposed to work with that kind of crushed me more because I thought, oh, maybe I'm not good at that because I'm like, I don't see any results. It's not going to work. You're not that good at it as you say you are. And it crushed me again. I was like, no, maybe I am not good enough. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Who knows? And I didn't see it as a sacred, as something sacred. And I didn't see it as a way to serve instead of that business that needs to make money because, again, we still wanted to pay off this money, uh, the debt. And um, there was let's talk, though, because you have touched on two really big things that that as I'm experiencing, not only does everybody that is moving through the spiritual journey has to look at, but it's something that affects people, whether they're in a spiritual journey or not. And Leslie joined us and said hello. So hello, Leslie. Um, So two things. One of them is facing the contrast between organized religion and spirituality. And the other one is our beliefs around money. So let's talk about organized religion Mm -hmm. versus spirituality. I, I, for me, I had an absolutely profound shift. I grew up Catholic, very much like you, a lot of shoulds, a lot of rights and wrongs. And when I began to study the history of organized religion, there, there, there is actually an author. Her name is Elaine Pagels and she is a theologian. And I, I can't remember which Ivy league school she teaches, but she is, she is Jewish by, by culture, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she became very interested in, in the, the Catholic church, Christianity. So she did a lot of research and wrote some amazing, amazing books that blew my mind wide open. Once I began to understand that the Catholic Church was organized, specifically organized for the purpose of political gain. It was to control the people. The Catholic Church was created 300 years after Christ had died. So when you begin to look at, well, why would it take 300 years for us to have a Christian church? Um, It really began to open me up to not only facing the fears that had been instilled as a little girl. If I don't do these things, I'm going to go to hell. God is disappointed about you, right? Oh, my gosh, is going to punish me. God became Claus. One day you're naughty. One day you're nice. And and you're going to be treated differently depending on how you are. But everything, no matter what I did, was guaranteeing that I was going to go to hell because I could never be good enough. I, I was born sinner. Yes. So moving through those beliefs was a very scary process for me because I felt that I was betraying my grandmother, who was Catholic, my father, who was Catholic. Uh, My mother was atheist, so I never felt I was betraying her, but I was betraying part of my heritage, part of who I was. Yeah. So a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. What I'm believing that God is loving when he really is wrathful. What what if I'm pretending that this mm-hmm. is a better thing than actually it could be? So a lot of self-doubt. Tell me, let's let's just stay on the religion topic uh, first. How were you able to move through letting go of that Protestant and like you said, Protestant Lutheran uh all stems from Catholicism, from Christianity. How were you able to move through that? What helped you? Because that's important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that may sound really weird, but helped me was that I was like, over the pond on the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah. That creates a distance between uh, what 
there's just a distance between the ones that you try to please and yeah. you and being on your journey because they didn't know, like they didn't know was I would, what I was doing and I could choose what I wanted to share with them. So that was a good thing to do. Not saying that everyone needs to leave their country, but that was actually for me what was really helpful because I have a very strong relationship to my sister and my brothers and my, my parents. Um, but even my, my siblings um, started to move away from church I don't think they really understand the term of spirituality, but they just moved away from church too. So it was getting a little easier for me to share with them what I was going through. Um, it was, I think, honestly, the coaching has helped me tremendously to move through some of that because everything that is related to religion are started to become beliefs. Like I'm not good enough. Um, I disappoint God. I... I have to be very careful. There are a lot of like Satan is trying to convince us, even if it feels good, it's probably not good. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, if it sounds too good, it's not right. So things like that. You always have to work hard. That is instilled from me from church. And I had to work through one after another through those beliefs to let go of them and to, to see those are beliefs that are actually not true. And every time I released one of them and worked through one of them, I saw how I was more able to trust my intuition again. And you know, when you feel suddenly, um, it, it the voices just become so much more clear. Exactly. It, it just feels good. And so I was like, okay, it feels good. It, if it wouldn't feel good, I don't think, or if it wasn't right, I don't think it would feel so peaceful as it does. Yes. And, and I totally agree. I, I, you know, in my coaching and my workshops, I teach people that we hear two sets of voices and we hear the voices in the head, which is the programming. Like you said, everything that is taught to us through religion is that we uh, are become beliefs because mm-hmm. once we agree with them, they become a belief that we have to work through eventually. Um, but then the, the other voice is the voice of our soul is that intuitive voice It's the voice that we heard as a little child that moved us that inspired us that was our source of imagination and, and creativity and inspiration. So yes, we have these two sets of voices that we have to at some point say these are two separate sets. One makes me feel good because it aligns with truth. One is the one that keeps me in confusion and, and mm-hmm. fear and discomfort and chaos. Yeah. Um, so I'm so glad that you made that that distinction. And uh, Sharon had said that she likes the idea of working through your beliefs one at a time to trust your intuition. And we have to because yeah. belief is a voice in our head. You have to work hard it means you can't intuitively hear no you don't have to work hard you can work with love and joy um and then leslie is saying that yes as coaching um because she too is a life coach and she does very specific amazing kind of coaching uh that we're constantly drawn to work on ourselves yes of course we can't teach this to somebody else until we've done it for ourselves. And I know Leslie knows exactly how that is. And I have, yeah, I mean, all this time, over the last six years, I've always worked with my own coach, always. Um, But what I want to add to it too, and I think maybe that resonates, especially with younger people, what has helped me too to create the difference between spirituality and organized religion was to let go of the term God. And maybe that sounds weird to other people, but for in that moment, I had to let go of it because I created a picture to the term God. It was that personalized guy in in the sky that has his 
um, scepter right here and is judging you for everything that you do. And I realized how the term divine and universe actually resonated more because we see divine feels loving and just kind of more mellow and just very giving and mercy and grace. And it just, I don't know, it just felt different to me. And universe seems so unlimited. There's nothing that can stop you. And so I started to resonate to those terms and before I was able to step back into the term God, when I once I released those stories around the term God and not personalizing God in the way that church does. Um, yeah. And I'm so glad that you're making that that distinction because I did the same thing. I literally mm-hmm. could not say the word God. I cringed when I would say that word. Yeah. And I went through many years calling it spirit source, universe, whatever, divine, anything other than God. Um, but have you come back to the word God? Have you, are you comfortable with it now? I'm yes, I'm starting to, I'm still sometimes struggling, especially depending on who you talk to, especially when it's people from church. Um, I'm starting to really have a different, more empowered relationship to the term God. Um, Sometimes I still choose the term divine over God, just because it just, it just depends on where I'm at, at what stage, if I need a little bit more grace than usually I tend to be more divine. (laughs) Oh, well, let me tell you, um, I'm typing it here. Let me type this real quick um, so I can share this with people. But I was told I, I, like you, have encounters with God, with Jesus, with whatever you want to call it, with the energy, with consciousness, Mm -hmm. that that infinite intelligence that we all have the ability to tap into. And I was told one day what to call it. And it really became fascinating because it is. It, it gave me the opportunity to finally have a name that felt comfortable for me. Now, this is not the name that's going to be for everybody, but I'm going to show it on here. But it told me to call it Jeezel. Jeezel? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's funny. Jeezel is an acronym for God is the source of the energy of love. <sighs> I so love that. When, and anybody can borrow it, but it's um, it it told me. You need to call me what is more accurate about what I am. And what I am is, is the energy of love. And yeah. the energy of love is the source of everything. Nothing can be created without the energy of love. Right. And that is what God is. So when we clean up all of the mis, mis- beliefs that we have labeled or placed mm-hmm. on God, God is going to emerge as nothing more than the source of the energy of love. So anyway, so Leslie says that's beautiful. Um, I have a lot of fun with Jeezel because <laughs> I'll be talking to Jeezel and people are like, oh, man, are you calling, you know, a weasel? It sounds like a kid's book. <laughs> I, yes. So tell me then, where are you in your relationship with whatever you want to call it? That divine? <laughs> I don't think I can, I can even describe it. It's that beautiful. I mean, I do my meditation every single day. I'm outside a lot. When you get to the point of where you clean all those beliefs up and you really understand the connection that there is with the divine, everything becomes one. Yes. You just sit there and you literally morph into everything that's around you. And it includes everything in this world. Mm-hmm. And it has changed everything inside of me. I mean, I still, I'm human. I'm not every day like that. Trust me. I mean, 
uh, my son can get me to a point where I'm like, oh, just leave me alone. I need to get work done. You know, we all get there. We're just human. But for the most part, you can have so much more deeper relationships to people. You can just tell people, I love you, even though you just met them for the first time without feeling weird or making it romantic or sexualize it. And the person in front of you feels that. They just feel seen when you say, hey, you know what? I love you, dude. I love you, girl. Um, there's nothing weird about it because you don't make it weird. You just feel it. It just comes from your heart. Exactly. And that's, I think, where if, if we understand that the source, the divine is always inside of you, it's the center, the core, the essence of who you are, it can always radiate outside of you. And every single day I ask God to really radiate that love that comes from him Um to, to radiate that out so that I can have the most impact within the work that I'm supposed to do. And from that place is an absolute trust and the most important safety, because from a place of safety, that's where the unlimited opportunities are being established and being shown to you. And you can actually see them. If you don't feel safe, you try to find everything. If it's material things, relationships, whatever it is, just to make yourself feel safe because it's not coming from within. Like um, the authentic power, his, what is his name? Sukaf. He was talking about that. I forgot his his first name. Oh, no, but back to, to tie into your point and, and Sharon was saying that one of her friends calls God, him, Didi. And, you know, <laughs> in the movie, The Shack, I don't know if you saw that movie. Yes. Uh, the, the wife of the gentleman, the, the woman whose child was murdered, she called him Papa. Yes. And you were talking about um, it creates, you feel that safetyness when you are tapping into that source of all that is that is within you. That is one of the things that organized religion has done that that we all have to work through is mm -hmm. it actually made God a God that, that scares us. Um, and we need to return ourselves to creating a relationship, which is one of the things that I love about um, the AA program, uh, Alcoholic Anonymous, that helps so many people, is that they refer to God as the God of your own understanding. If you I didn't know that. Yes. If you don't come to understand God because you have an experience of God, then you really don't know God. Exactly. So to your point in having those experiences and I, I had I had many amazing experiences and all of them were felt and hard to describe them because somebody else cannot understand yeah as you're describing you know what an apple tastes like if they've never tasted like their words they mean nothing but if you same thing in trying to describe the experiences that I felt and that is that we are we are coming to develop a, a relationship of trust. We're trusting that yeah. that is already inside of us. And when I do many times when I'm talking, I, I try to, to paint a picture for people mm -hmm. to give them something that makes sense in the world that they already are familiar with. And what I like to say is, you know, have you seen a dead body? If you've been to a funeral, you've seen a dead body. So body on its own has no life, has no power. Yeah. So what is that thing that leaves the body when somebody dies? Well, it's it's spirit, it's energy, it's what animates it. So wouldn't we want to create a relationship with that thing that, that animates us versus yeah. just that body that can't do anything for us? 
Um, and that is to me what God is, is the thing that animates us. So why not create a relationship with it while it's still in our body versus when it gets unplugged and we're left with a body and nothing we can do about it Yeah, at the point of death. So I love that you're talking about how, you know, you, you've created that safety, that, that knowingness that it's inside of you, because when we can feel it inside of us, don't, don't you find that it's just a natural thing to want to radiate? It's like a light. It's like a lamp. It want, It's going to shine no matter what. Yes. What religion did and what beliefs do, not just religion, is it creates a block. It creates like blankets that we throw on top of that. Um, it creates uh, a dimmer, if you will. Beliefs yes. just dim the light. Now, I want to make sure that we insert something here because I'm sure you're going to agree with me on this, Isabel, is we are not intending to uh, criticize organized religion here because organized religion in itself holds the truth. However, you cannot teach people the truth if you haven't felt it. And many who who teach organized teachings and um, they're professing uh, dogma haven't felt that you cannot possibly feel God inside and teach that God is is a fear, a God to be fe- feared that is outside. Yeah. So by all means, religion has its place, clearly has its place. But when it's no longer serving you, you know, because it's not moving you to come to know God inside. It's It keeps you chasing and doing things for a God outside of you. Yeah. So that disclaimer. Um and we still go to church. We just go to non-denominational and they really fit in with our belief system. It was interesting yeah. to find that. So, yeah, no, it's nothing against um, church or religion in general. It really is what we're, some of us or most of us are being taught. Yes, we. I do, too. I go to Unity Church in, in Georgia and it's absolutely wonderful. And it is like a community. And Sharon is saying that she agrees organized religion is important. But so is a personal relationship with a God of your understanding and that she's enjoying this discussion. Exactly. Organized religion centers that bring people together that create an organized uh, set of teachings that point to God inside of us. Yeah. It's extremely helpful because it coming into community, having a coach is being in a community. Being with somebody who can see something we can't see to point us back in. Yeah. Well, I think um, organized religion is also afraid of losing power because once we understand that power inside of us, that authentic power, we are capable of doing things God has said. Jesus said, I think it was in John where he says that um, you will do greater things than I because I will be with the Father. And what does that mean? Like if you take a look at what Jesus did, we're capable and if we if we allow the Holy Spirit to move through us, like we're going back to spirit, right? Exactly. We have similar abilities. And I think especially someone who works with a lot of impasse, so most of us have very special gifts like me. But if we would openly talk about it in church, ooh, that is suddenly that supernatural. I mean, God is supernatural. But when it comes to the we experience supernatural, then it's suddenly from Satan. Like, yeah. There, there's just that that distinction doesn't make any sense to me. Well, Jesus was supernatural, so explain that to me. Is that suddenly also? Oh, but just because it's Jesus, it's not okay. I get it. Um, you know, you have those conversations with people, and that's really hard. And you see it with younger people. We talked about that, who are experiencing more and more of those gifts, more and more of what we call awakening, and 
they feel judged for what they experience and what they're capable of if they would really step into it and then they leave church because exactly. it just doesn't feel right. Yes. And they, yeah, they have a lot less fear. They're, they're going to mm-hmm. listen to the voice inside more than they're listening to the voice uh, outside of them, their parents, yeah. fathers, preachers, teachers. So let, let's do, I, I want to jump um, to the money piece because like religion, uh, that has its its organized religion, its set of beliefs. So does money have a set of beliefs that we have to work through? But let me just say this one thing um, and tell me if this has been your experience. If I had to sum up my entire spiritual awakening, the journey to what it led me, what the destination has become, because I'm no longer seeking. I know what I know the truth now. My work while I'm still in human form is to stay grounded in that and to live Mm -hmm. from that. So I still get pulled out. My ego mind, my beliefs still kick in. However, there's nothing else that I'm seeking. I already know the truth. Um, And it's this. The final goal, the destination was to recognize what Jesus said 2000 years ago. I and the father are one. God, Jesus, the energy of love. I am that. There is nothing other than that. And it's in my recognition that that is what I am. And when I know that it is love and it is what's radiating from me, that's when I can be the presence of what is divine, what is wonderful, what is caring, compassionate, loving, uh, accepting. It moves me into action, benevolent action. So what would you say has has would be the the ultimate place that you have come to where you now know as the truth that you are grounded in um are you referring back to money no it's still just what what the truth what is the truth to you because that's the truth to me i and the father are one i god and i energy and i there's one and the same you cannot not be one with with all that there is yeah i absolutely agree with that statement And then it's also for me the truth that we're all connected and therefore have responsibility for each other, no matter how far someone is away from us. I am as much responsible for someone in the Middle East as they are for me. Doesn't make a difference in what situation we are. So I think um, it just increases the sense of responsibility that I, that I feel towards other people. Um, But again, knowing and knowing and having the understanding of understanding of what I'm capable of, because again, we are created in the image of God. Yeah. Beautiful. And, you know, I I had told you that I teach from a course in miracles. And Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I love that the course in miracle teaches is that I am light. I am that light, which is just another word for that energy of love. And it says that my job, my function here is to be the savior of the world. And the savior of the world means as Jesus was, when you love everybody, you're no longer condemning. So we save people by not attacking, not judging and condemning them. Yes. So I love what you're saying. There is a greater sense of responsibility to the whole of humanity once you begin to realize that you yes. are the center of love, that that is what we are. We are, we're these little, you know, individuals uh, appear to be individual centers of love. They're supposed to radiate out. Um, yeah. So very cool. So let's, let's, kind of segue into the money conversation uh, because it all ties together. The misunderstandings all tie together. So share your, your awarenesses around that. 
Oh, I think, okay, so here's my understanding of money. I think we uber spiritualize money. <laughs> um, often we suddenly, suddenly money becomes something so spiritual that we have to create all kinds of structures and strategies around how to attract more money into our life. What I have learned through this whole spiritual journey is that money is just another tool to meet your needs. If you know that your needs can be met either way, is it through anything money financial wise, or if it's through someone who's just there, support through other people, whatever comes to mind, you're no longer clinging to how much money do I have to make to be able to do that. Even if you have no money whatsoever, if what you desire is part of the need to move you forward on your path, it will come to you either way. Maybe through a gift. Maybe suddenly you sell something that makes more money than what you could have ever imagined. Maybe you have that one brilliant idea to sell. It doesn't matter. But I think what my spiritual journey has allowed me to understand is to detach from money as the foundational source to meet my needs. Exactly. How beautifully said. Um, you know, I was married not too long ago to a, a millionaire and, mm -hmm. and it was fascinating. And I was just having this conversation with my coaching client this morning that I never felt less safe, less secure, uh, more unhappy than I had when I was married to somebody who said he wanted to share all of this with me. And yet his fears about money were so strong that it was used basically to punish me. So I would be given something. And then if, if I didn't meet his requirements, it'd be taken away. And I, I had to, to come to terms with the, the recognition that um, money is exactly what you said. It is just a projection. It's a reflection of how we see ourselves because if we are all one if, we, if there's only one energy here and for me to believe that I am energy I have to believe money is energy I have to believe houses are energy people are energy trees are energy the planets are energy which quantum physics is telling us that that right. is true so if if money is energy then if I'm experiencing lack then I'm believing in lack in me because I am the one who is through my belief system, through my projection, experiencing out there what I believe inside. And I could only see money as controlling me because with, with that particular husband right. because I was out of control. Uh, I was not aligned with my truth and I had given him control of my safety and my, my financial security and forgot that it's coming from inside of me when I projected it as something external. So yeah. I, I love what you're saying. So say a little bit more about how how do you uh, what's your relationship with money today? Because for me, it's just a fun thing to enjoy, but it is no more important than a breath to me. It's yeah. more important than, than smelling a rose. Um, I'm, I mean, um, we're living in, in the human world and the physical world. So of course there's sometimes that, that lack of money still comes through. I'm like, oh my gosh, suddenly like everything is breaking in your house and you have to buy everything new. Yeah. Even though I know there's no reason for me to worry, but it's just something, a default behavior that, that I tend to go to. But in general, it is for me to understand my needs and to ask 
um, that my needs are being met no matter what way that looks like. Money is no more important than your food. Money is no more important than your house. Money is no more important than the tree in front of me. It is all the same and everything is there to serve us, to meet our needs, for us to move forward on our path towards light and love. And if that includes money, so be it. If that includes something else that might be a loving relationship, so be it. But none is more important. None has a direct relationship, really. It's just about how can we, what what is it that we need to meet our needs so we can move forward on our path? And that detachment has opened up a lot of opportunities for me where it, it no longer was that heavy rock that I had to carry around. And how am I going to make more money? And how can I have more clients? And how can I do this? And six figure and seven figure and eight figure and whatever else. Um, but really just being in that moment and enjoying what I have in front of me with that trust and that safety coming from within that what I need is always provided for. And that may not be money that I need, but I might just think that I do, but it might just be another person or something else. And when you have that spiritual journey from within, when you get to that place of truth for love you are more capable of seeing the solutions to meet your needs exactly. and not just money exactly because if we're not looking for it out there we're listening to the voice inside that has the solution the perfect yes. solution because for me listening to jesus inside of me is it's like the big project manager in the sky. It knows what I'm supposed to be doing to connect me with the right person at the right time. And yeah. that's why all of my needs are always met because it, it's coming from a trust, not from a having to make it happen. I don't work anymore. I retired when I started coaching 12 years ago. <laughs> that's, that's when I began to do what I knew I had to do, which is fun. It's easy. I love what I do. Yeah. In my giving, I, I receive whatever it is that I need to receive. Now, we're coming up. We're going to have to wrap this up, but I don't want to wrap it up without having a quick conversation about your son. Yeah, yes. Here you have sweet little Jonah. He is four years old. Let's talk about as we begin to wake up and we begin to become conscious and we align with the truth of who we are. Uh, we're we're making a major shift in how we see the world, and then we have children. And or for me, I I made my shift after I had children, so I had to I had to do some cleaning up of of unconscious parenting. But let's talk about what what is it? You know, these kids are coming in here. Very powerful, very yes. connected uh, to me since 1988, since the harmonic convergence, since we have had the shift in consciousness that um, the indigo children are coming in with. There is a higher frequency of, of knowingness that these kids have. Let's talk about your sweet little Jonah. How are you parenting um, this this? already conscious being because he knows he's source and yes. you just recently discovered it. So how is that? Sometimes he triggers me because there's still things where I'm like, oh, you have this already figured out. You're only four and I'm 34 and I haven't figured it out. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so there are sometimes things, I mean, and, and he's a four-year-old, like in his physical body, he still does things that four-year-olds do. And of course you respond and react. But one thing that I've learned that helped me with the conscious parenting is to be aware of my emotional world. That's something that I teach. That is something that I love to speak on the emotion, topic of emotions and um, 
that once I learned what my emotions are trying to tell me, even on a spiritual basis, I'm able to parent more consciously and understanding what he is experiencing and what questions I can ask him to reflect on what he is experiencing. And they respond like with him. I think one way of conscious parenting is not to ask what is wrong, but what do you need? No matter what they experience, if they have a meltdown, if they have a tantrum, of course, sometimes it's ridiculous things. And it's like, okay, you can have a choice. You, you have a choice. You can continue what you're doing right now. And I just have to take things away. Or you can make this other conscious choice and talk to me what really is bothering you and how can we find a solution? Um, but there's less and less judgment to what he experiences. I mean, he's four. He barely ever has tantrums because usually when he does have tantrums, I know it's coming back at me. He is picking up on some of my energy, some of my thoughts, some of my stress that I have created for whatever reason. And then I have to do the work. He's just reflecting it back at me. Yeah. And having a child that conscious is him, especially he's very... I think he, he, I don't, I'm still not quite sure on the term of indigo, what that really includes when you read online, it kind of feels like Icelandish, like alien kind of thing. But um, he's very empathic. He's very connected to nature. He loves trees. Like we go in a, we go on a drive and he's like, oh, that tree just asked me for a hug. Can I give him a hug? Can we stop? I'm like, well, you have to understand everything is energy. You can just envision giving him a hug and he will still feel it. We don't have to pull over. So now every time he is like, I just gave him a big hug. They asked me for a big hug and he's just so happy with it. Every single vacation picture we have of him is hugging him a tree. <laughs> um, and so it's very uh, I think playing into what their need is and again for him it's being out in nature being outside he doesn't like shoes okay fine as long as we're not somewhere where it's just totally gross you can keep your shoes off like in the backyard or front yard because we don't spray so it's okay um everything is natural my husband is a naturopath and a master herbalist and so we grow our own food for the most part we don't use chemicals so he does our own medication things like that you know so i think that is already very helpful for conscious parenting because he doesn't get that toxic overload he's more clear he doesn't watch barely ever watches tv because well we we don't so i don't have time for that yeah. and um and he's not very um, indulged in those kind of things. And he's just very aware. Like last year, he was only three. Our neighbor, they like to water their lawn. And I just, the obsession of Americans and their lawn is ridiculous to me. I will never understand it. Sorry, sorry. Don't, nobody feel offended, but it's true. Yeah. Um, but he went over and he, he looked at him the same way what we talked about earlier with his hands on his side. He's like, you know, neighbor, you're wasting water. That is not okay. You don't have to let your water run all day. That is wasting water. And I just went back inside real quick. Um, I was <laughs> like, yep. And then I just pretended like I didn't hear anything. I'm like, Jonah, where are you? <laughs> and he was three, but he was he was speaking so much truth. Of course, the neighbor was like, oh, that's funny. You're three. You know, then we we laugh at those little kids when they say that. It's so funny. And And that is something we need to be aware of as well. He's also very loving. He loves to give hugs and it's just who he is. But then from other kids, he's like, stop giving me all those hugs or ew, you giving him a hug. That's gross. And then he feels judged for it. And he feels like, oh, maybe I'm not supposed to show them love. And that hurts me as a mom and having that conscious awareness. But at the same time, I can explain to them that 
some children grow up differently and they are not used to showing that much love. And so it is okay for you to do that. But next time, just ask if they're okay to, for you to give them a hug and if they feel okay with that. And I think it's more about him making aware of what he feels and how he can work through that and asking the right questions, pretty much just coaching the child through whatever they're going through without all the judgment. And again, I'm not perfect. I mean, sometimes he's just driving me crazy too. As I just stop whining. I can't hear it anymore. It's like my husband comes, I'm like, take him. I need a break. Um, because he's mostly home, especially now that it's summer break. Yay. I know parents know how that feels. Um, but he's also really amazing. Like right now we have this interview. He's in his room. He knows that it's important to me and he just reads his book and is quiet. There's, he does that all the time. He's just so conscious. I always said from day one that he was born, he's the most considerate child I've ever met. And people just laugh. (laughs) And that, that is to me what the indigo uh, terminology really encompasses is Mm -hmm. consciousness that is heightened, that has, has them feel that connection to to everyone and every and everything and as a conscious parent our our work is to help them preserve that yes. while we guide them on how to navigate the the unconscious world how how to navigate the maze that has been created for thousands of years as the walls of the maze are little by little coming down. But until all the the walls are down and we can all move about in oneness with each other, there are rules and regulations. Some are beneficial. Some are are not. Yeah. It's beneficial. if we all drive on the same side of the road and we have green lights and red lights. That's a wonderful uh, structure that is helpful, but it is, it's not helpful to have structures that are rigid that say that, you know, this is, this, this is right for everybody. Not what you feel inside. Um, But I love, I love how you have this, this little master in your home. Yeah. Um, I think one thing um, that I want to mention real quick, I know we're kind of running out of time. Um, Children do not manipulate unless you teach them, unless you teach them what it means. For me, the first step when he was very little is to trust him no matter what and how old he was. If he started to really scream and didn't want to stay at a place, I trusted that it was for a reason and I would not leave him there. He was not manipulating me. He just didn't feel safe. And for him to trust me was for me to do the right, make the right decisions in that moment and to say, okay, it is in in sacrifice to what I just wanted to do, but I need to teach him and help him that trust is a sacred place to be in and that he can trust me so I won't leave him here people were looking at me like he's manipulating you he can get whatever he wants like no he does not if you knew me I'm German we're very big in discipline that's not the case but this way now he is really telling me like straight out there's something here that I can't deal with or that I don't want to deal with can we go somewhere else he just tells me that now and he's four but it's because he trusts me and I trust him in his judgment and how he feels I love that you said that because trust is something we have to model for each other. So mm-hmm. how is he going to continue to trust you? And trust is innately natural. We, we all yes. are born trusting. Um, but then we model mistrust. But to be able to maintain that trust, we have to model it. So for him to trust you, you got to trust him. 
And that's yes. beautiful. So this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. I wish we had two, three, four, five hours. because I agree. That could go on. <laughs> but I, I want you to tell people, how can they find you? Because you are a life coach. You, you help people with their emotional clearing. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about your practice. Even though we're going a little long, it's a recording. People can come back and watch it later if they have to drop out because they've got to be somewhere. But Tell me a little bit about your work and uh, how can people find you? How can they connect with you? Yeah, um, my niche, especially the people that I work with the most are empath and empath warriors. I coined that term a couple years ago. Those are the empath warriors are the people who find themselves trapped in that introvert box, but have this fire, that extrovert fire on their heart where there's like, I'm, I'm supposed to do something bigger, but I can't leave my room because it's scary. I'm overwhelmed. I'm frustrated. I have anxiety. I have depression. Those are often signs, but they just snow on a hard level that they're yeah. called for something much bigger. So I, I coined the term empath warrior. So I work with them on an individual basis, really helping them to bring balance to the intro and the extra route and knowing when you can switch and how to switch to still feel safe in that place. Love that. Um, and that has, has been amazing work so far. I mean, oh, I, just, I, I just love it when you see it unfold, how people like, I'm a different person. I can finally breathe and have this freedom. And I know I can do because I know how to protect myself energetically and emotionally what I feel and distinguish between all of that. And then um, I also do emotions clearing session with anyone really um, who's interested. So I work through that, through, you know, probably the emotions code, but I'm also a master a Reiki practitioner. So I have that certification as well, but I also have those really amazing, amazing gift of seeing colors around people. And I know now that what I see is reading their heart. It's the vibration that I receive from their heart that turns into color in my head. Yeah. And every color has a specific frequency and therefore a specific message and a specific meaning. And then usually I have like visions coming with it. And all of that combined makes it so powerful and very unique because I mean, that's, that's what I can do. That's why I say everyone has a very unique place to be in and to operate from. And, um, and then I, I pretty much teach and speak, especially um, I do inspirational speaking on the topic of emotions and trust and intuition, but I love the topic of, in, of emotions. So I also have this course, the empowered warrior, how to, a simple guide to successfully trusting your emotional world or not, not no, a simple guide to successfully navigating your emotional world. Yeah, there we go. And, and isn't that really what this journey is about? We, we're discovering beliefs, but all of those beliefs mm -hmm. activate emotions. So we have to navigate the emotions that get that get created that get activated by the beliefs that we hold and beliefs yeah. that are fear-based contract our energy. So we yeah. feel that emotion of shame, guilt, you know, we pull in. Um, yeah, I just posted something the other day. Um, emotional work is spiritual work or spiritual work is emotional work. Um, empathic work is spiritual work. Therefore, empathic work is emotional work. Yeah. Anything that has to do with self-awareness is, yeah. is spiritual work. It's uh, tell, tell me the website that people can find you. Yes, it's isabelhunt.com, H-U-N-D-T, Isabel, I-S-A-B-E-L-H-U-N-D-T.com. Because people right. often forget the D. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write that real quick um, so that people can find it. And we'll post it right here. So it's just isabelhunt.com. 
So there it is, nice and big, so you can find it. Make sure you put that DT in there. Yes. This has just been a wonderful conversation. We may have to do this again. Um, I agree. I totally enjoyed it. Oh, me too. Me too. There's there's such gratitude uh, from my heart to yours because to me, the most courageous people are the ones who are willing to say, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I don't have my shit together. Maybe there's more (laughs) to life than what I knew. I am willing to hear. I am going to be curious to see what else is there. Because without that curiosity, there's never a willingness to question your beliefs. And I, I feel that all of our suffering comes from beliefs that are limiting us, that are that, yes. that confine us, that keep us in, in a very small circle, very small idea of who we can be, who we are created to be. If I, I and the Father are one, if God and I are one, if that energy that creates universes and I are one, then I am unstoppable. I am unlimited. So why wouldn't I want to know what more is there to me? Yeah. Um, but to get to that place, we have to, you know, first take the we first to do the work. Yeah, do the work. And usually the first step starts with surrender. And you mentioned that earlier yes. several times. So thank you for being here. Thank you for doing your work and surrendering so that you could create uh, this amazing courses and, and what you teach and your your processes, because we all to me, the best teachers are the ones who teach from their own experiences. Yeah. Um, and that that's where the authenticity comes in. And and it's just so beautiful. And it's always so loving because you're sharing from your heart. So thank you for being you. Thank you for being a conscious mama and a conscious wife and a conscious woman. And thank you. Awaken being. So I look forward to seeing you again soon. And let me just let my audience know that the next um Align with Lina. We won't have it next week because it's Memorial Day. So in the U.S., we celebrate Memorial Day. So have a fun day. But we will meet the following Monday on June 4th with my friend Kim Sumling, who is also a life coach. And she's a Reiki master as well. And she's an amazing woman gone through her own transformation. And she is aligning with the truth of who she is. So join me on June 4th for that next interview. And until then, have a wonderful time. And remember, we're magnificent. And it's just a matter of how much of that magnificence do you want to align with? It's up to you because you're powerful, creating your reality every second. And um, you're loved, period. So thanks a bunch. And thank you, Isabel. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to everybody who joined us and for your wonderful comments. Um, Take care. Bye-bye.